Lords, ladies, and lowlifes, I'd like to welcome you to the second season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. When my brewery was facing extinction for the third of five times, I poured my heart into a book by the same name and released it on Amazon and Kobo in August of 2021. That was my sordid tale about the mistakes I made and the punches I took over a 10-year career in craft beer. It was tough to write, but it was a story that needed to be shared and it contained lessons I wanted to make sure others could learn from. I truly hope you grab a copy and reach out and let me know your thoughts. In this podcast, I wanted to share the stories of struggle, strife, and sacrifice that other owners and operators have experienced. Some of the content is emotional, and some of it is inspirational. And I'm confident that if you listen closely, you'll find all of it to be educational. I want to take the time to honestly thank you for being here, and thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing, and liking the podcast. With your help and the help of our guests, I truly hope that we can teach the world how not to start a damn brewery. Our guest today is Lauren Kenzierski of the Late Black Rabbit Farm Brewery. She did beer the way I did, only more authentic and actually on a farm. Sadly, we can't taste her beer now that her brewery is closed, but we can hear the story and feel the passion that went into every bottle. And I truly hope that both of those come through in this interview. She tells her story from inspiration to construction, all the way to distribution and final dissolution. There's a lot in there, and I'm eternally grateful that she took the time to share it with us. She knows her shit, she's an artist, she even understands business, but as we'll hear over the next couple of hours, it was not even close to being enough to help her farmhouse brewery stay alive. You'll notice I'm a little annoyed and maybe a little sad during parts of this interview. See, Lauren and her team got to do what I wanted to do. My long-term plan was always to get back to the land and make beer the way that they did, on a farm, with the trees, animals around, stuff grown from the ground, put it in the beer. I'm well aware now that it wouldn't have changed the outcome of my story, except maybe to add a few hundred thousand more to the amount of money I lost, but imagining how those days were spent still makes me a bit nostalgic. So I hope you enjoy the episode and Lauren's brewery's story as much as I enjoyed recording it for you. Cheers and listen in. So my guest today is Lauren Kinzerski from the uh, Black Rabbit Farms. They had a brewery up there for a while. Lauren, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks most of all for growing, planting, and harvesting a big-ass fuck about helping my audience be better at their careers. So you founded a brewery on a farm, or it was a farm on a brewery, or however you want to call it, but from what I can tell, it's exactly what I wanted to do, and it was the long-term plan of my brewery that one of many I never got to, and clearly you had some struggles along the way. Clearly that led to you eventually closing the brewery, and that's ultimately the story I really want to hear, but first... I want to know who you are, what's your backstory, and how'd you get started. Tell me about you. Before you came a beer person, what kind of person were you? I, I mean, on some level, I've always been a beer person in a general sense because I have, I'm a lifelong food and beverage person in terms of like really high quality, like fine dining, but with not price-based decision-making, but really quality-based decision-making. And I spent a lot of time all over the world. Uh, working in food, and I spent a largest amount of time before I moved out to a farm um, in New York City. So I had kind of like a very wide range of experience in terms of all kinds of food and beverage. I look at beer, especially as a food, which is interesting because it's the same permit for making beer and making food wholesale. For brewers, if you have a food permit locally, it's like inclusive. And so I really love making kind of like old, like a really classic kind of traditional dishes because it's an interesting thing how 
to me how food and beverages kind of started and grew and traveled around the world and have these different iterations um, based on like locally available ingredients for seasonality and things like that. Do you have a go-to dish that like you're, you're stressed all day, you don't have time to think, but these nine ingredients are always in your pantry and your fridge that like is your go-to meal? If I'm like pooped, I can make any kind of pasta like crazy pasta without having to like think at all so we always have (laughs) you know that's kind of that's my you know not like real italian pasta not you know americanized italian pasta but real kind of classic stuff we always have you know bacon and eggs and really good parmesan and stuff like that so you can always put something like that together pretty easily yeah tons of flavor and just yeah I, i like that that's great okay so at some point somewhere along the line you're stuck in the middle of all this beautiful food, these amazing creations, and this life you're living making these beautiful things. And you said, you know what? The best way to ruin this would be let's go start a brewery. <laughs> so how did that happen? Like, talk to me about the the, the decision to, to become a beer manufacturer instead of just a beer appreciator. Oh, my gosh. It's so convoluted. So and And, and it usually is. Yeah. <laughs> so I moved back to Western Mass and like a food truck and catering company, and I was really successful and I needed to expand. I wanted to grow more stuff that I couldn't get available because we would buy everything locally. And so I bought the farm, but the thing with food is you have to do like bonkers volume of food to like make like real money. And it's only getting worse. Oh, the poor, poor food and restaurant people these days, you know, the prices of food haven't gone up in my entire 20 plus years of career of eating the prices at restaurants haven't gone up but the food has and so like you just can't really make any money unless you're doing bonkers volume and so the idea was well what if we did beer and food that seems great we'll do more things so (laughs) um so i used kind of this business that i had that was located luckily i found the farm was a town away like eight minutes in the car from where my hub of my food business was. And it had a house, so I lived there, planted all this stuff. And the idea was to create beer that was like my food, which was definitely more in the old sour style, which is like my food, ingredient-based and kind of letting nature do what nature wants to do and not kind of like pressuring it into this like tiny funnel of existence that works for you at that moment kind of just letting it you know do show its beauty in its own way and so i uh bought this farm and tore down this uh wild old dairy barn that was on the property and built this massive metal (laughs) barn that had a kitchen tap room on the bottom floor so that people could come into the tap room so the brewery is on the second floor and it was this huge space um, that we did two stories high for the brewery itself, just so that the plan was to have so many barrels aging that we could get like pallet racking and have them like it'd be like a Costco of cool beer and barrels kind of upstairs. So the upstairs was going to be bottle storage or barrels? Yeah, but barrel, mostly barrels. Okay. There's like a little like side room where there's the crane. So everything else they go up and down a crane. So that's super fun. Especially when like the first delivery of bottles, which we did them all in 750s, came double stack pallets. So in order to even get them in, I had to like unpack half of each of the pallets 
onto other pilots just so that I could get them into the building. So that was a really fun day. Yeah. Hanging off of a crane, trying to move cases of glass, of glass bottles. But so I opened this like tiny, and we have a, we're on a farm. So we have a septic. We have like a one barrel, had a one barrel system. We were like, we're just going to do a little bit. We'll just sell out of the store. We can do events at the farm and just, we can already cater. So we have the kitchen and like a really good, business behind that that was how it started and so it took like two and a half years to build the building because it was it's like this massive amazing it's an amazing building it's like all stainless it's like or uh, metal walls and you know cement floors with floor drains and all the right but just for what we needed because we built it just for us so it was awesome. I mean, it still is awesome. It's, <laughs> it's still there. End up being, it's still here. Um, most most recent, the last since we've closed, we most recently um, have been using it as a skate park in the winter time um, when it's too cold to skateboard outside. And um, we've had CBD farmers drawing their product up there. So that's its new oh, that's cool. life iteration so far. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a bunch of plans for what you're doing with it, which I look forward to diving into. One question I wanted to ask you is, I made a a myriad of mistakes, and I believe you haven't read the book yet, but I am sending you a copy, so you'll be able to go through it and laugh at all the things I'm probably going to tell you through this whole podcast. One of them was not having an accurate business plan. So in your plan, did you did, first of all, did you write it down? Did you have an actual like business plan like you're supposed to in the whole uh, entrepreneur per- situation? Uh, well, interestingly, as an entrepreneurial professor, and as a, <laughs> I always tell people that you shouldn't have a business plan because if you make a business plan, you're going to fail because you, there's no way you're ever going to do the uh, the first thing the first idea you had and planned out, that's never going to be what happens. Like two days in, you're going to be like, I have to change this. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you're like, what? There's so many variables. I mean, it's like also that old adage of the your favorite thing you ever made. No one will like, like everyone that works with you will be like, dude, we just made something bonkers. Everyone is going to flip. And then everyone's like, I don't get it. And then the dumbest thing you like, I shouldn't say dumb, but just like the just most boring mundane thing you make is obviously the most popular. It's it's like that in restaurants too with food, you know, um, when chefs come up with menus, it's the same exact thing. They'll get so jazzed about something and no one will order it and they'll be like. (laughs) And after hours, like the chefs and the people in the know will always hang out at this one place that tends to not be the most like popular and no one goes to, but the food is amazing or whatever. I mean, that's where I always am. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> we don't really have that in beer because that guy goes out of business or, or like us. So, yeah. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's like the bummer is like we wanted to create this like like a really a beer that was for drinking with food. Beer yeah. That was for food instead of like and I know people do all these beer pairing dinners. OK, your beer isn't for eating. It's not for eating. IPAs aren't for eating. Milkshake beers are not for eating. That's like well, a they, snack. It's like drink. It's for drinking. They are like, a meal unto themselves. So it's like, exactly, what would you pair that exactly. with? Exactly. And I'm cool with that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm all down to have a, like a beer as a snack. I'm in. But we really want to create something that would be like beautiful to have with food. And that would like enhance the experience like a really nice cocktail or a really nice glass of wine does. So it was like, yeah, we want this. And all the like heady food people that, you know, we're friends with were like, yo, this is great. This would be so great. 
And then we were like, everyone else just wants it. We were like, oh yeah, that's not what everyone else is thinking about. Yeah, not from the business <laughs> perspective. So I think I had the same problem and, and my business model was similar. Like, let's just create something badass and the people will come. And if they don't come, at least I'll have something badass that I'm proud of to drink on a regular basis. And in my situation, I was never able to make money. And so the only caveat, and I agree with you, wholeheartedly in the sense of, you know, having a business plan almost stifles your creativity in a way that doesn't let something beautiful blossom. But in this industry, I don't think you can make it. And and I would be interested to see another brewery able to operate on, a, you know, a slim 12% margin without having a, a solid plan and being able to say no to things because it's not going to work. You know, I don't know that that's my opinion anyways, in my experience. I think it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's like, however you think about it, it's more that you need to be sure about, I mean, it also wasn't my first business in New York. I mean, it wasn't my first business, which is also kind of somewhat different than a lot of at least brewers that we have in our area they're just learning how to balance <laughs> a checkbook yeah and i mean they're they're great but it's like i was like no i'm gonna do it like this because i want to have these boundaries i don't want to have you know what i mean i'm not going to open the tasting room up all the time it's at my house i can't deal with that you know what i mean i i i already was very there was like a lot of parameters that it had to fall under no matter what, we were also severely limited by just like the space that we had at the farm and the amount of product we could even produce with what we had there and what we could store and everything. It was a joint business with the food kind of business. So it kind of was a, it was a different thought process, I think, on some level in terms of like, It was supposed to not necessarily make a ton of money on its own, but really kind of build with that. And um, especially because we have like campsites on the farm and all that, that we're hoping that they would add to each other to create a value in a space so that I didn't have to schlep my life around and do like 30 weddings a year. (laughs) I could do them (laughs) on the farm and not have to like... And I could cut out like six hours of my work day on a Saturday to down. I could get it down to like, you know, like 10 hours. That would be nice. It was kind of an interesting thing. And and also working in, we're in a very small town where, but on like our main commuter route, but the town with what we were doing, what really was challenged by us because it's just a bunch of like old guys that work two days a week. It's all like they're only part time because there's not enough stuff going on in the town hall for like inspectors and things like that to <laughs> be working full time. So it takes forever to get anything done because it's like if they don't read your email that week, then they don't get back to it the next week, then they're not going to act on it until the next week. It's like this whole thing. Um, and they really weren't jazzed about what we were kind of like doing because it was different and they had to think about it and kind of understand the rules instead of just feeling like, Oh yeah, it's a house. You need to have this because we deal with houses all the time or you're putting in a CVS. We understand this because we deal with businesses all the time, but in a small town where they're not used to like people doing creative businesses, it was a little, our business plan on that level had to be really flexible with them kind of like trying to flip the cards a lot. Um, on what we were organized to do. Yeah, they just didn't understand the, the concept. But I remember we had, even in our town, it was 40000 50000 maybe at the time when we opened. Our building inspector made us put essentially a little plastic 
blockers underneath the lights so that if a bug went into the light, got, you know, shocked and then fell, it wouldn't fall into the tank. And I was like, wait, there's no opening. Like, what do you mean? Well, it can't get in the tank. It can't. It's it's not ever going to be open. <laughs> what What do you mean? He's like, well, just do it. I, you have to do it or I won't pass you. I'm like, uh, whatever oh. at this point. Yeah, you're like, you're like, yeah, sure. Just like, yeah, whatever it costs. You, you know, you get to that point. You're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Just like, I, I don't know. Just add it on. You know, you're like, awesome. Well, you can't I'm win the argument. Like, yeah, it's like, whatever you expect it's going to cost is going to be like three times more. And it's going to take you twice as long to earn the money back. So even if you are like, no, this is the worst case scenario. When you make your budget, you're like, I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, no shit. Well, I will tell you that from from my perspective, and I'm I'm not surprised to learn that I try to not overly research what you guys were doing so that you could to give me the story. And the idea of growing produce that you would sell to people and using some of that to make beer with that they can pick up, and then having a restaurant that makes the same produce into food that they can sit and eat is literally the most exciting thing I've ever heard. And unfortunately, now the more I learn about the industry. I'm not surprised that it struggled, but that is my favorite idea I've ever heard in the beer industry so far. So kudos to that, at least on the, on the, the beginning. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas. Hit me up. I can come up with ideas. I give them out for free. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just want to know what happens. <laughs> just give me the, the backstory or the end story of how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just write me a little, send me a card in the mail after three years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so why black rabbit what does that mean when i bought the farm i moved my rabbit operation here so we used to raise rabbits for meat for our catering company i raised like 300 head of rabbit a year we also because they ate like all the veggie scraps and then we combo you know they had make yeah. poop and poop goes on the field it was like a whole thing and it was great i love raising rabbits for me um and so that's where the rabbit came from and the real reason we went with black rabbit, I should say I did, is because I use the royal wheel a lot, I should say that. Um, doing, <laughs> I just like like to think about the team as all of us, but you know what I mean? It would, you know. But the black rabbit was because I've had so many businesses in the past and I like the one thing I always hate is when you get swag printed and if you have multiple colors, it costs a fortune. So I was like, I'm just going to make sure that my logo is just black and white and I'm going to save <laughs> so much money on getting things printed. And that was the real reason. It's going to be so much easier. You can make a stamp and stamp it on stuff. It's so easy. You can be identifiable and, and that. So it's like a... Um, for those listening, it was like a black rabbit, the logo just kind of sitting and then with kind of like a, instead of like a crown of laurel leaves, like, you know, for like the Olymp old Olympics or something, it was like hot. Yeah, I saw the the bottle labels and, I, and the, each one was a different back color basically, but then you had the rabbit on it and it was very crisp and simple and I thought it was fantastic, which is funny for me to say, if you ever go look at any of my labels, they are exactly the opposite where they're overly complicated, the names don't make any sense and... They are probably the opposite side of that, and but you know, at the end of the day, whatever. We actually made similar beer, but just went went about selling it in, in very different ways. So, yeah, I like yours better. Thank. Anyways, I don't know. I think that's a cool thing, though. Yeah, I think just, that's pretty rad. It was just overly pretentious in the sense that it didn't. And I, you obviously said the same thing. It almost or it doesn't. It didn't resonate with the people that were the ones we needed to sell to. It resonated to the ones that were far and wide. That you know the the one percenters, I guess, or half of one percenters. 
But, you know, the everyday Joe came in. He was like, it's called what? Why is it French? Like, like fuck you. I don't want to drink that. Like, just, <laughs> what do you have that tastes like Dos Equis? We're just, you know what I mean? It was, anyways, we, I, I'm still proud of what anyway, we did. Here's the thing that happens in every, so I had this food truck, but it happens in all industries, which I think is funny because I had a, like, people just have these, like, they just aren't thinking. Like, people um, come up to this food truck I had and be like, you got, like, a hot dog? or And I'm like, first of all, the menus, you're literally standing in front of the menu, so I don't know what to tell you there. But also, no, it's like a farm potato kilo food truck, and you think I've got hot dogs? I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, you're right. like, no. But you make me feel like the asshole. Like, at some point, why would you even ask? Right, right. It's like, you just, you, but people don't understand. It's like, there's something about small businesses that people have, like, it's harder for them to wrap their mind around things. Like, you would never go into McDonald's and be like, where's the sushi? Right. You know what I mean? That would never happen. Just been being so incredulous like, about like, it. Like, why is there no sushi? Yeah. What's and the problem? You're like, you don't have anything like sushi here? Like anything with rice? And you're like, what do you mean? It's McDonald's. Like, you'll Get be out of business. Together. You'll be out of business in a year, McDonald's. There's no way you'll make it. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah. I wish, right. <laughs> so, well, talk to me a little bit, more, a little bit more about the branding and the artwork. That's one of those categories that I, I really intrigues me personally. But did you design the art then, basically, or how did that come about? Yeah, and so the idea was that from working in the industry, I wanted it to be the, the what, what I was hoping for, but you know, whatever. I was that it was easily recognizable as our stuff from far away on the bottle. So let's say it was like stored behind the bar at a restaurant. If you were sitting at the bar at a table at the bar, you could see the black rabbit label. And even if you didn't know that flavor, you knew that it was a black rabbit product. Those labels that you saw, they're all different colors, but primarily just the logo. Those are kind of like our, not our barely stuff. Those are kind of our entry level stuff. So they all had the same wart base. So that's kind of like we, it was all that kind of the same beer. So we wanted the label to look the same for all of them, even though the flavor and the sugar that was used for finishing was slightly different just to reflect the um, fruit that was used in the beer. Mm-hmm. And so that was the idea with those kind of different colors. We did like this black and blue one with blackberries and blueberries where that one was fun because it was a black label with everything was written in blue. And I love that one. And we did a strawberry not weed. And I don't know about in Texas, but up in New England, not weed, Japanese not weed is this like invasive plant. Um, but if you pick it really early... In the spring, when it's just popping up, it kind of looks like an asparagus head popping up, and you, it tastes hmm. like rhubarb. So we did like a strawberry rhubarb kind of go with this invasive wheat. And that one was like pink to green, like variegated across gradation, and that was really cool. I love them. They were fun. They were cute. I liked them. <laughs> you know? That was one of my Sorry, follow-up questions is, uh, so now with a little bit of perspective, do you still love them? And now you answered that one for me. So you you still like, think that was the best way to go, and, and I – Personally, agree with you. I think that was a. They, I liked the way they looked. It was a crisp and clean branding. If the beer struggled, I don't think it was because of the bottle personally. But I'm curious, looking back, if you think that had anything to do with you know the, the final um, shutting down the brewery. I mean, it definitely pigeonholed us even more in a like a and like we were like this cut. I mean, there's obviously like sour beer people that like were just so into it and would come. You know, that just were like yes. And then just beer people that were like into everything would be like, yes. But, and then typically middle-aged women that were wine drinkers, but wanted to go to a brewery with their husband 
we were the place. So those kind of labels, because they were more kind of like wine-esque and how they were like laid out, played even more into the role of like having this kind of like fully dry, you know, bright, acidic, like sparkly beverage that was like reminiscent of like Pinot Verde or like, you know, champagne or something like that. that. So it was kind of became like, we had a specific customer base that was kind of driven by those labels, I think. Yeah. So, so during that time, I'm sure you saw other breweries in your area that just literally exploded in you know, popularity and distribution reach with effectively cartoon cans, right? Like cartoon label cans. Is that something you would ever do if you had to? You couldn't pay me enough money. <laughs> okay, love, wait, I, I take that back. I take that back. I would, and again ideas all day long if i would love to make like just like a real the most simple but like amazing pale ale that's just like you that just is so easy to drink and have like some crazy like graffiti wild thing or do it in like a a, just a bizarre bottle shape i would be into that but as like a specific product, like as like a silly thing. But I like, think those labels are hard to, it's like, you, it's hard to know what's what. You no, know, it's funny. So to me, and I think, you know, you're a wine fan too. I tell people all the time, just go Google quality wine label art. And like, there's, there's a direct correlation between shitty wine and cool labels. And the, the better the wine gets, the shittier the label gets and, and vice versa. Beer's I mean, in a way, it's the opposite. It's the the guys that sell the most. And I guess it's that way with wine, too. Like, the, the lower-priced things are the ones that do the highest revenue and the biggest volume. But the, the guys that are selling the most that you hear about all the time are the ones with the stupidest-ass labels. And they just – the consumer apparently is dumb enough that they don't care, which I can happily say now that I don't have a brewery. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, the caveat is is the best part. But so uh, one of the questions I like to ask everybody is, in your opinion, what do you see a correlation between quality beer and popular beer? Is it a correlation together or a correlation in reverse? In your opinion, do the best beers have understated labels because they don't have to? Or is it vice versa that if they don't, they still don't get the attention? I just think that at the end of the day, in every industry, the higher the quality of the pro- general product, the less you sell it for more, but the less of it is consumed or produced at any level. You know, like Prada isn't going to make a billion shoes, but they're going to make a lot more money than Crocs are making selling a billion shoes. I think that that is just something that those of us that really love product and the artisan nature of it and just like what people, interesting things people are doing that with like a, a real solid end goal in sight, not like, what if I just throw this stuff in the pot? What will happen? I'm like, yikes. Right. You're like, no, why are you thinking about it? Why are you making it? You know, mm-hmm. I think that the people that are looking for that are always going to find it, but in certain industries, it just hasn't gotten to there being maybe enough of a high quality product available. That's that's not just like the big names. I don't really know because uh, it, it exists with 
the wine, I mean, at least in our area, we, I don't know about in the area of Texas, but it seems like it's really hot there, but we have a lot of wineries in our area as well. And they have grown much more sustainable by producing just products with stuff that they grow on the on site and creating like a really quality product that goes for like a $30 price point for a $750. And I don't think that that market has really shifted to the beer industry yet. I think it's still people feel more comfortable spending that much money on a quality wine, but not on a beer. Yeah, and like you said, we you have those fans that are willing to do it and to drive for it and to talk about it and Instagram it, but and that feels great and it's fantastic. They're not enough of them, or we couldn't find a way to get enough of them, right? So at, at the end of the day, maybe these wineries have a—I don't think they have a better margin. I mean, not really, but somehow they were able to sustain that business model and just didn't work. Didn't work for me. Clearly, didn't work for you. <laughs> yeah, no. All right. Well, so on that note. Let's take a quick break, and then I want to come back and ask you a little bit about the brewery that you built as far as like how you selected the equipment, the size, and all that kind of stuff, and we'll get into the, the nuts and bolts of what you had. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back in a second. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay, so welcome back. So I wanted to talk to you about the equipment you selected. You uh, you said you did a one-barrel system initially when you opened? Yes. I guess, where'd you get it? How did you choose it? And why one barrel? Uh, obviously, you had a plan that you, you needed 31 gallons at a time or whatever you got minus true loss. But what, how did you pick all that and why? Well, well, the goal was to own, the goal was to, other than grain, was to grow everything else on the farm. And it's not, a, it's only 10, it's 10 acres. It's, I mean, it's not tiny, but it's not big. Mm-hmm. especially for Texas. <laughs> um, <laughs> our goal wasn't necessarily financially based so much as lifestyle based. We didn't want to have to like have like a huge, like ton of people working all the time, even when we, if we were having a day off because it's at literally the build, the brewery is 50 feet away from my house. So I, that would be for me, I need days off from having there be a hullabaloo at my house. And so we kind of limited it to that size, which worked, was easy to approve with like the, a normal, again, a normal size well pump and a relatively normal size septic. But also we have like running water on the property. So there's all the conservation uh, kind of land thing so we could only work within the confines of like 
the buildings that were already on the property when we bought it. Um, so the side, we couldn't like grow bigger. We had to kind of be the size that it was. And so we kind of tried to think about making more like, again, barrel aging things. So making less volume, but kind of creating a higher price point product that was special that you couldn't get everywhere because of what it meant to do that really. Sure. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> Yeah, no, it makes sense. So the, yeah, the business model was to make something unique and special. And, and honestly, I, there were so many times when I wish I could go back to that in a way from where we were, the, the whole idea of, you had mentioned earlier, but you, know, you don't know what's going to necessarily take off or the market's going to be into. And the beer that defined our brewery for four years was a pickle juice Berliner Weiss, which creatively hurts me to say out loud, but financially is the only reason that I did not shut down in 2016. <laughs> so at the end of the day, it is what it is. But we had to make, you know, we were doing 30 barrels uh, every 10 days at one point, And it was just soul crushing. Like it was great to have the revenue, but the reason that, you know, and I, I say us, people like us had get into this industry was to make something beautiful and hand it to a customer and see the smile on their face. It wasn't to create volume of pallets and ship them to Florida. You know what it is, what it is. But anyways, I get where you're coming from. So how did you pick the equipment? Did you just, did you, did you buy it new? Did you buy it used? Bought it new because everything was so small. There wasn't like anyone someone could have like a use the same size basically and have like a big home brewery secretly in their garage you know right we had a colorado brew systems set up i don't know how much you want to go into that i did like the idea of it um and it was very efficient in terms of volume and extraction and all of that so that was advantageous to us because we didn't have a lot of loss um, in that way because of the way it's kind of was, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're kind of like a big pasta pot. So like instead of having to drain the wort off the grain, you like pick it like cranes up the grain and it all drains through and you can like sparge through that and like get everything hmm. out. So, and then you could just bring it up back up to temp with it just like dripping over so you could just like leave it there and it would like just keep like you get all those like really sugary like bottom stuff that normally just gets lost because it's kind of in the grain still so it was kind of that aspect was good it took a thousand years to get it hot oh really (laughs) was it electric yeah three phase um with a big element that went in it that we went through in one year we went through three yeah, which is also a nightmare. And one of them, like, they sent, and, like, all the wiring was exposed. And we had to, like, get up. We were, like, we don't even have time. That We, like, need to brew beer. We, like, can't, we don't, can't, like, send this back and wait for another one. So we just went and, like, bought epoxy and had to epoxy and cover all the wiring. And I'm, like, what were, what were they thinking? I don't, um, I, I would I'd say that most people have some sort of experience like that. We even had one where our, our manufacturer got a bunch of kegs from China and a Chinese keg washer. And they forgot, literally, this is, they forgot that the three phase in China is different. And so when you plug it in in America, it fries it. I didn't I didn't know that. I wouldn't know that. But I'm not a manufacturer of equipment either. It's not my job to know it. Yeah, no, that's a nightmare. So ultimately, were you, you were happy with the equipment that you chose? 
No, it, I, I would not suggest anyone ever buy anything from that company. I don't think they're nice people. I, I just, and I'm like a big, like, I'm like, even if it doesn't work for me, I'm like a very honest person. I am like a big supporter of new ideas and other businesses. I love it. More, more cool stuff and less corporate stuff, please. However, they were just really challenging to work with and it was upsetting and, you know, I just don't like that. It's like if someone today is like still trying to pay someone $8 an hour to do some like job, you go get it together. I can go work at, you know, the pride gas station for 15 bucks an hour, you know, get out of here with that noise. <laughs> Hit the street, bitch. All right. So, so the system did not meet your expectations. You ended up running some issues there. Did you end up getting rid of it, going a different route? What, what did you do to continue making beer through the frustration? I call it Polish MacGyvering. <laughs> Why Polish? Uh, this is a good one. I want to hear this. It's just, it's like MacGyver, but, you know, but, like, less beautiful looking. Like, you, we, <laughs> you just, like, find a way. It's like real, it's like real farmer stuff. You know, you just figure out a way to make it work for as long as you need it to work. And then when it's done, you're like, ah, get rid of this. I never want to see it again. You know what I mean? We just kind of like made it work. And we were always like fiddling with it and, and coming up with like, you know, I mean, I was very lucky. The person who I hired to be like assistant brewer facilities manager with me was also really good at like coming up with creative solutions to kind of like fix things, although probably more safe than me. They're always like, no, Lauren, that's a little crazy. And I'm like, ah, you know, I can just climb up there and I'll just hang off of this thing and we'll do it. And they're like, that seems like a bad idea. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> so it's good to have two heads, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a yin and a yang to make sure that it works correctly and efficiently. So obviously you had some issues with the system. So one of the things in my book that I, I had an entire chapter on why not to buy a nano brew system. And that's clearly, you know, there's been multiple articles written. Everybody thinks you shouldn't. I, I don't know if I told you this, but I actually started with a two barrel system as well. So I experienced a lot of these very similar things and, and recognize that the biggest problem. And, and so I guess my next question would be, have you, did you ever get to brew on a larger system? Uh, no, our solution was that we would only brew the barrel age stuff in that system. So we brewed weight. We didn't really use it that much. And that all we bought a trailer and rented like a, a bunch of um, tanks from Matano had another local brewery brew our wart. And then we would pump it into these tanks and then schlep it down to us and then pump it up to the second story. And then we'd add all our, we'd have our yeast grown and we'd add all our yeast and everything else. So that was our solution was just to kind of collab with some other, you know, people that had faith available and it was like a good extra income stream for them. And it was just nice to like help out some other people that are doing great stuff. Yeah. So in hindsight, do you think that you would have even bothered having your own system or would you just, you know, if you were doing the business plan over again, would you buy a small system or would you just contract through the word somewhere else? I think, yeah. I mean, isn't that the sour style? I mean, that's like the old, that's the old, the way to do it. I, yeah, we mm -hmm. would probably have not even, we would just have a storage space with like, you know, that you could like hose down probably. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's, there's even a, a, a less popular and, and less well listened to 
kidding. Podcast run by uh, the guy that runs a wh- the Rare Barrel, and they did that for years. And that was the I think they recently installed a brewery, but the first at least three to five years they did not own one. They just contract brewed everything and became one of the top twenty most renowned sour brewers in the country. So it works. It can work. So. Yeah, it definitely works. It, it's also like wild to drive around with liquid on a trailer. <laughs> so tell me about if that. You've ever Describe that experience. It, it's bo- yeah, it's bonkers. It like it's definitely you're like okay. It's like I've driven a lot of trailers <laughs> time. I've had a lot of hours with the trailer, but with the liquid on it, you're like okay, all right, I see. We're gonna be very careful. I'm going to preface this by saying I have a similar experience where I did not, but did you do the math on how much that would weigh before you tried to load it on the trailer? Oh, yeah. I forget what it was, but it was like we couldn't have put more. It was like we figured out the max, got the maximum tank amount for like a, the safe level. Plus, then you have to count in the stainless steel tanks, which weigh a ton. I actually uh, I worked out a deal with a winery in Texas, and, and it was – kind of inspired by him but conversation with the guy that owned it and we were like hey we i want to do a beer where i blend finished rosé with goza and have this like salty kind of like wine forward um light-bodied beer and we worked out a deal he ended up selling it to me for i think it was like eight thousand it was one of the dumber things i've done eight thousand dollars i'll say right now eight thousand dollars i spent on wine to blend with a beer and i pulled up with a I, i do think it was a double axle trailer but it was a small one and the operations manager just laughed, and he's like, you're not going to put it on there, are you? I'm like, why? What do you mean? He's like, it's 13 pounds per gallon. What? Yeah. 300 gallons. What do you mean? He's like, you're going to pop your tires if I put it on there. I had to borrow their trailer and, like, bring it back. I was supposed to get, I don't now remember, I think it was, they might have been 800 gallons, I think, was the total. <laughs> it was some number that I could not bring on a trailer. But so how much did you bring over each time? Was it, how many gallons, I guess, would be a question. I think it was like 300 gallons. Really? You had to get it. It was like you had to get ideally an F350, but a 250 would work. Because we'd (laughs) rent the truck because I didn't have, you know, I had a Ranger and like a transit van for like delivering stuff and like catering and things. So I didn't, I didn't have like a big truck. So I had to rent the truck, but bought the trailer. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was never bad. It was always kind of, it was always kind of a fun experience. I mean, the place that brewed the war was at the, these old mill buildings in like a, a town, a few towns away. And we had to like pull it down like these back old alleys, like in the mill that was built like in the early 1900s, you know? And so it was, like, that was a little precarious because it was like just fit. And you had to, I had to like back it down this like 32 foot trailer. You'd be like, okay. <laughs> and then pull it out full of thousands of pounds worth of uh, beer. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I hope the ground doesn't collapse. <laughs> make it work. That's what we do. We make it work, right? Say yes, <laughs> figure it out later. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely was. I was raised that way by my father, and uh, learned that that was how to make it work. And I don't, I don't know how helpful that was in the brewing industry, but I, I enjoyed doing it. So it is what it is. We, we, we make it work. So in, in my book, a mistake four is just brew whatever is popular instead of what is profitable. Um, I am curious how exactly you, you didn't only make mixed culture beer, did you? Uh, so when we first opened in order to have like more options for people, like right kind of away, Mm -hmm. we did do a few like weird, but standard beers, but like weird versions of them. 
Well, the one I saw that I like, obviously want to ask you about would be the Irish Stout, I think it was called, right? And it was yeah, clearly part of your that heritage? Was fun. Or? <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, my, my, I still have family in Ireland, so that we, you know, that is, like, a big part of um, our lives. I mean, as a kid, I, you know, government, don't be listening to me, but, like, <laughs> the first thing I remember is going to visit family. My mom loves Smittics, but they didn't import it yet. Um, to hear. So we would, she was like, here's the thing. And we'd always bring home this like Irish bread. It's like this oat brown bread that they have. We bring home like 12 loaves. And I remember being like four or five and my mom being like, listen, they're going to ask you if there's food or beverage. You're going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) You were a mule. I love it. You were a mule. Yeah. For beer and bread. Classic Irish Polish girl. This makes sense. So yeah, my mom would like always like bring in a few six packs of Semitics like hidden at the bottom of my uncle's golf clubs to uh, make sure she had a few <laughs> at home when we got back. And then obviously now you can get it here, but it doesn't taste the same as it does over there. Just like Guinness doesn't taste the same as it does when you get it in Ireland. It's like a different, I remember, different I remember the first time in Dallas that I had a Guinness on draft after coming back from a week hike in Ireland. And I was like, I think I put it on Facebook, and I'm like, I am now the asshole that says, well, Guinness doesn't taste near as good in the States, but it's totally different. It's not even close. Uh, it was beautiful. I mean, the ingredients are different. They, it's like not this. Yeah, it's not the same thing because the quality of ingredients are different. I mean, even those like baker shortbread cookies that are like English that you can get like everywhere, you know, sometimes they have them at TJ Maxx and those like stores. <laughs> when you get them, in ireland or england they're like man the butter you're like holy moly i'm i I love butter i'm like oh these are so good and if you get them here you're like get out of here with this american butter stuff this sucks (laughs) i want the good stuff (laughs) i want it to be like gooey almost but yeah that stout was a really fun thing we wanted to do something and i mean to this day it's like my mom's favorite thing that's like all she would drink when she came in is that is that stout and it was really fun, and we just, like, did a pretty, like, standard stout, but then we fully dried it out. Like, all our beers were fully dried, and we let it kind of hang out while it did that in a bourbon barrel. So it had a – it was just – it was, like, fun. And you went, yeah, this is a stout, but it's not, like – it's not, like, anything you've had before. It was kind of, like, a fun thing, and people really dug it. And, and we did like a big, you know, St. Patrick's Day event here and had like shepherd's pie and stuff like that that people could have. So that was kind of a fun day. Yeah, that's cool. So what were your flagships? Like what were the beers that revenue wise drove your company, I guess? So the one that like makes me the happiest is our um, kind of our farmhouse ale line that was our entry line and our elderberry which are all fruit that i grew so um we always have elderberries every year and we sell the fruit and we sell elderberry honey tonics it's a medicinal uh plant and we sell we have plants all over all over the farm of that and so it was almost because of the elderberries aren't really sweet it really added like this kind of like cool minerality and kind of like it really tasted like a grower champagne is the best way i can describe it because it was like really clean but it had this like cool like back flavor and that people really dug 
they really, really liked it. It was a really good cheese. It was just an easy drinking thing. People like would buy a case and bring it to a wedding and have it instead of the champagne. So that was kind of a cool thing. And I love that because it was stuff we grew on the farm. And then I would say the the one that we really sold out of that was like, it was like one of those ones we just like made because we were like, oh, let's make something, <laughs> have, have some other things until like all these kind of like longer aging things are kind of ready. And we did an orange cream ale, but like in our style of like letting it kind of dry out. But we, in that one barrel, <laughs> one wine barrel, we aged it in. We also like zested and juiced an entire case of oranges. <laughs> and the whole building smelled like oranges for like a whole, it was amazing. It was honestly, it smelled like really good and people loved it, but it was kind of just like a whatever, you know, you're like, okay, it, was, it wasn't anything that kind of like necessarily fit otherwise with our, our brand. It was just something to make kind of, and it was really popular with our neighborhood. So we have, we're just in a kind of a rural neighborhood, um, like any kind of like farm would be a dairy farm. And it was, our neighborhood was really accepting and loved being able to just kind of like walk in. And so that was like the, you know, we called it the bonfire beer. So it was like a good beer for hanging out and having a bonfire. Did you guys brew it for that? Did you, was that a, in response to the, is that in response to the response of the community that you were like, well, here's a hole in our game. We need to fill it with this. Or was it more artistically designed or whatever? You know, what was the inspiration for that beer? We, although it does have orange in it, we kind of wanted, because our farmhouse ales were all like, fruit and like oh people just were like they were like oh they're fruity and i was like no they're like not fruity but they have fruit in them there's like you know a difference and so we just were like we should make some other stuff that doesn't you know that like has doesn't have like fruit as like a major namesake just right now just to kind of get more people in the door because once people tried it also people were pretty into it most of the time especially there would always be like you know, we had a Concord and an apricot that we called real drinking beers. Like you could just like open the 750, put a big straw in and you could just, it was like a mimosa in a bottle. It was so good. And I looked up your beers online and the Concord one was the one that intrigued me the most because I don't have any reference point as to what that would taste like. So that's, that's a, a cool idea. Unique and different. I like it. Yeah. And they were like the only two that we did that were different flavors, but the Concord and the apricot that were like similar they they felt like siblings do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. they felt like the same beer but different flavors whereas the other ones were like really different like you couldn't people really couldn't tell that they were from the same wort. but those two seemed like siblings and they were very easy to drink it was like you could really but also like our neighborhood like like someone was like ah oh, man i drank like three your but like some neighborhood kid um we like I drank three of your bottles last night. I really just wanted to get wasted. And he's like, <laughs> and I woke up and I like felt great. I didn't have a hangover. I was like, yeah, because they're like all the sugars fermented out. It's just like if you only eat white bread, you feel, you know what I mean. And yeah. he was like, whoa. And then he was like, that's cool. <laughs> so I was like, you know, even if it's just for that, that was like kind of like a wild, a wild moment. I had struggled to ever put this on the label or whatever, but at the end of the day, if you're doing mixed culture beer, it's usually only one or two 
microbiology ingredients um, off of a kombucha. And so whatever health benefits you're getting from kombucha minus the tea, you know, a lot of that same microbiology and gut health, it still exists in those beers. It's just, there's also alcohol. So you gotta factor that in, but yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's like how we felt about the elderberry. We're like, it's like you're having medicine. It's like probiotic, it has elderberries in it. They have like lots of antioxidants and vitamin C that fight colds and stuff. I'm like, it's great. <laughs> you can just drink your medicine. <laughs> like if you spill it on your um, hand, just rub it in like deep. It's like a cream. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. So which of your beers did you use uh, lactose in? Um, n- none of them. I, lacto- I hate lactose. That's like my question I asked. Just, just, I can't stand it. I wish to God it would go away. Back in the day, there was a moment when you could do a beautiful stout and have like a hint of lactose, and that's dead. Nobody knows balance anymore. So thank you for not ever using lactose in your beer. I'm not like, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I'm like, I'm again, I liked all the... It is like a cool thing to use, but yeah, it's like at some point you go, okay, calm down. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. people are using it now to cover up weaknesses and to you know make it taste sweet enough that the stupid American will drink it. But you know, you export that stuff outside the United States, and people are like, why? Why do I have a um, a lactose intolerance the second that I fucking have it? It's just it's too much. Like it's not it's not balanced, like you said before. Like, it just needs to be balanced, whatever it is. Definitely. All right, step off my soapbox, back to a business question. How did you decide <laughs> on your pricing? So uh, this is all over the place, and it's super interesting to me. And, and that's if when you're a new brewer trying to figure out, like, how am I going to build my brewery? Pricing is always one of those things that people tend to look at last, and including me in the, in the beginning. You know, I'll be honest, the, most of my pricing was based on um, 30% less than Jester King. That, that was pretty much it. <laughs> like, ah, I'm mm-hmm. not quite as good at Jester King, so I'm 30%. I'll just say that. So how did you decide on yours? Like, what was the idea? Did you have a spreadsheet or was it just sort of what my dad used to call a swag, a scientific wild-ass guess? Oh, I love that swag. That's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I've, I've been, like, you know, doing, like, food and beverage for a long time. So I do kind of, like, do budgeting on like what the ingredients are going to cost and with you know approximately what how much the electricity is going to cost per batch and and that kind of thing and figure that out something i always used to do and i will say i've cured myself even though it's still there um and i teach this to my students is i always have this problem where i want to make things affordable for whatever that means like i just i want and anyone to be able to afford something nice. It's just so hard because there are people that just like love quality things, but it's really hard for them to afford it because of all of life. And that's kind of what that farmhouse line was. We are like, oh, we're going to do this thing that's like interesting, like wild captured yeast from the farm, but we're going to like hone it so that we can like get this beer out in a reasonable amount of time. But we'll have this other line of beer that's more expensive. And that's like the real primo thing. And I just, I always go, I, you got to just charge a real amount of money. Like you got to charge a good amount of money for it. You can't keep picking around that anymore. It's like you figure out what it's going to cost you. You can't go, I'm going to make this much more, you know, percentage because those old kind of also numbers that people would look at, like, oh, if my cost for my ingredients is 20% or whatever. The problem is, is that 
ingredient costs has gone up astronomically as well as electrical costs have gone up astronomically. So you have to kind of readjust those numbers. I mean, obviously for the area that you're in, things can be different if you have like closer access to malted grain and things like that. That can be different. But I, I, I think that it's always worth it to own what own your worth, I guess, and not try to make it so that you're not making enough money off of the labor that you're putting in. The whole world's going to do that for you. You shouldn't do it to yourself, basically. <laughs> yeah, don't don't cheapen it. Let, let them cheapen it for you. People are going to try to do that regardless, so. Yeah, so can can you share what the numbers were? Do you recall off the top of your head? And if you don't, I apologize for you on the spot, but what, what your bottles did cost? Uh, yeah, so the, the farmhouse sales were $12 for a 750 Barrel aged stuff, it kind of depended on what it was um, and how much we got from it because all the fruit and everything was, so, they were all so actually different that it was kind of like if one of them was in barrel for, you know, three years, it was going to be obviously more expensive than its, you know, cousin across the room that was ready to go and, you know, in 12 months. So um, those kind of went from, I think, maybe like 16 and then up. We, the goal was that we would do some in like mini splits that were, would have been really expensive for a 750 we thought. Um, but if we sold it in mini splits that it would be maybe a better sell to people, but we never got there. What is uh, I apologize. I don't know what a mini split is. What is that? It's just like a half wine or half like champagne size. So like if you think of like an individual champagne bottle kind of thing, like in a mini bar. Like a 375 or even smaller than that? It's, it's like a 350 or something. It's like slightly smaller. Yeah, those like there's only a few guys that make those, but I've seen them out there, okay? What was the most, do you remember the most expensive bottle that you sold? I don't. Mine was 25 bucks. I think bucks. probably because it was mostly in my head. There were some ones that we never even sold, but we bottled and like drank and like gave away to people because they were like, barrel ones that were like really awesome but we we just closed and we we're like ah you know we were just like what we, i would just like load a whole like I, you know like i would be like oh call, we needed help for stuff and like we had all of our our neighbors and i would just be like i don't know i just like i don't know even know what to do with this so we're gonna throw it down the drain i'm like we did have one barrel though that we emptied out recently the, like just this year that was still up there and it killed all the grass, so I don't recommend to anyone else to do that ever on their lawn. If they, <laughs> the like, there's so much yeast and stuff in it, like coated the grass and then it died. So oh. don't do that, anyone yeast. at home. The acidity too, like it's basically like pouring acid on your grass. Like it's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Luckily, it was in a spot where it's fine, but it was pretty. It was like we were like, oh, all right. I got another big question i want to ask you about formats in general because obviously you guys were primarily in 750s and as was i and i experienced that that was a bad place for me to be so let's take a quick break and then i want to get into that we'll be right back remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and send it to your house in a book large enough to knock somebody out well that's how i feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without accubrew the industry can be better by being digital accubrew is simple to install simple to use, and one of those how the hell did we ever get along without it products. For less than a case of beer, you get real-time fermentation feedback on your current gravity, temperature, and clarity. If anything is slowing down or just simply out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. 
Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving beer quality off your list, and get back to figuring out how to be profitable in this industry. All right, so welcome back. I mentioned that I want to talk about 750s, and let's say bombers in general, or single bottles, however you want to word it. When did you guys officially start selling beers? Like 2019, I think? 2019, yeah. Okay, so... For me, I I fought it, and, and everywhere in the country is a little different. But so in Texas, distributors started telling me in probably early 17, maybe late 16, that like the retailers were starting to rip out bombers. You know, what's your plan? And I'm like, well, my plan is to be one of the 10 that stay. And, and we kept investing in bombers. And we, because in my opinion, your kind of, be, your kind of beer, my kind of beer, it it just presents differently and you can do it in a 12 ounce bottle, but much like wine, it ages differently. It's going to have a different character. Uh, it just, it, it doesn't present as well and it's meant to be shared. So it should be a 750 milliliter of something or a 500 milliliter of something. But by 2019, that died. Um, and today you can go to my local grocery store and there's effectively no bombers. I, th- I think at the end of the day, it's a couple of like, stovepipes and and some guys that I think they probably haven't sold in the last two years that are just trying to hang on to get rid of. But we had to transition away from bombers, much to my chagrin. You guys didn't ever go to cans or 12-ounce bottles, correct? No, but it was something we were going to do. You had to have been tempted. Yeah, you had to have been recommended. So the bigger question is why didn't you and, and how did those conversations go and why did you decide at the end not to? We're, we were the goal was to start putting the farmhouse ales in cans because it was very clear that the although I agree with you the beauty of those beers is that you sit down and you share them you have like have them in a cool glass uh, it's like you eat cheese it's a good time you hang out with your friends you play a game it's it's great right is that an invitation because uh, Massachusetts is not that far <laughs> I mean yeah we got cancer it's come on up. That was also my thought process. And also it just kind of, it is a more intense thing to make. And so it kind of, I felt deserved no matter what. It's like, I, yeah. Do I love like, like now that you can also get wine in a can? Yeah. But do I think that the wine in a can is good? No. First of all, it doesn't taste good because of the can. And it also is always trashy wine. That's kind of how I feel. It's like kind of, it, it doesn't even really taste like that kind of acidic product doesn't really taste good in a can. And no one's pouring out their cans. You know what I mean? And so... Into a glass, correct. Yeah, we had the same issue. We're like, well, it's not a big deal. You can put it in a 12-month bottle, but as long as you pour into a glass and then, you know, we'd go to a bar or whatever and you realize no one's really doing that. And why did we think that? And it's just... It, a farmhouse, wheat beer, mixed culture, eight-week fermentation, it just does not – none of the none of the characters there out of a bottle that you just chug, you know? Just Yeah, no, I mean, it can't be, and it's kind of like if you, like, have – if you have any understand, if you care at all about having any understanding about what you put into your mouth, which is not most of the world, <laughs> or our country at least, in most of the world there's a lot more interest in that, not in our country – then you would want to enjoy the experience more. Um, and so we realized that it, we wanted to still bottle the kind of higher end stuff, but we didn't want to, we were like, we'll go, we're going to do cans. If, we'll figure out cans 
for the farmhouse sales and we were going there was this like beer kind of outsourcing place that was kind of opening so we're like those beers we already buy the wort from someone else what if we get the wort from them and they can can it for us too and so we were going to have them do that but then we were just like the heck with it were they willing to can mixed culture beer or were you planning on doing pure culture beer over there when canning that with them they had it so like they could, we could do the same thing. Like they had all they had all different sides. I mean, I, to be fair, I don't even know if they ever opened. Um, it was like everyone was like, "Yeah, we're opening in a few months." I was like, "Cool, get out!" Like you know, and then it was like a dream in the air. They were gonna do the. We were just gonna do a thing. They had like all the canning stuff where they could like travel. Like it was like in a trailer, so mm-hmm. they could bring it to people like for smaller places, so that if you were say doing like a brewery out of your garage that you didn't you and you didn't even have a place to have canning equipment that you could like rent it and it would come and you could like use it and whatever so that was what we were going to do but again they kind of we probably would have if they had gotten their act together before we closed but it never happened yeah so a couple logistical questions one but i put in the book that I actually had reached out to all the canners and none of them would even show up at my brewery because of the mixed culture that, you know, Brett is notoriously like lives and everything and especially anything yeah. soft or whatever. And they were like, if, if we show up, can on your, on your stuff and then we leave and we go to this Pilsner brewery and they have a fucked up tank, they're not going to blame the fucked up tank. They're going to blame the fact that we were at Kelly's brewery yesterday. And so we just, it's not worth the risk. And we went through the whole process, thought about it. There was one, they're actually out of business now, but last year during the pandemic, uh, Jester King actually canned a lot of things. And so they they did go to there to do mobile canning, but I don't think they ever canned anything mixed culture. But so that's that's clearly an issue. But then there's another one, and I'm curious if you guys thought about this. So did you guys bottle condition everything? Yeah. So as do we. And I don't know of anyone currently that's can conditioning. I don't know if you do, but I was under the impression that there's an issue of the stacking and like the the cans have no, I guess, rigidity until such time as they have carbonation to push out against the thing to create, uh, you know, pressure enough to create rigidity to be able to stack it, whatever it is, eight layers high or whatever. And anyways, did you guys even get to that point or did you look at that? We didn't get to that point. We didn't look at it, but it always did seem kind of scary to me. But everyone's like, no, it's fine. And I was like, okay, okay. I mean, it's your, like, it was always kind of in the back of my mind, but I never really got to that point um, with it. And in terms of like the mix, part of my whole thing, and I, I understand people's like deep, deep seated fear about Brett and their brewery that doesn't have it in it on purpose. I'm like, it's in the air already. That's where it comes from. <laughs> It's Dude, already there. It Brett is like it's a th- already there. It's like so we're almost up against Christmas. It's like the Krampus of brewing. It's this folklore demon that no one quite understands and everyone's terrified of. I and I will not call him out because he's a friend of mine. I actually talked to a winery, um, a winemaker, and he's worked at many wineries and now has one closer to you. It's I don't know. It's maybe it's Atlanta. I don't know where it is, but he told me straight up to my face that. He doesn't use bleach in his winery because bleach causes Britannomyces. But he said it with such confidence that understanding the microbiology that even I was like, I'm going to go look that shit up on Google because I, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. That might be true because he was so confident, but I don't. there's no reality in which that's true. But 
Yeah, everyone has this. The only life. thing I can imagine is that it's like Brett, not it, like seventy-five percent of it will be killed by bleach, so that, but mostly everything else will, so that it, it will live stronger because it'll have more resources after you bleach. But the, even that's a stretch. That's a stretch. Yeah, but then at the same time, like, why are you using bleach in your brewery or your winery anyways? Because you can't clean tanks with it. I guess you're cleaning the floor with it. But if you put it on the floor, it doesn't matter. I I think we can establish that there's not that much logic and reason there. I love him to death. He's a great guy. It's just, yeah, that's the folklore <laughs> around it. Everyone, And there was even a winery, great friend of mine, um, loved the dude. And I would go out there and share a beer with him. And, and he would, he, one of those guys that just got to see the evolution. He's like, man, your beer over the last nine years has been fantastic. It's just really cool. But then at the end of that conversation, he would literally, we'd be outside the winery. He would pour the remainder of the bottle into the drain and then he would pour parasitic acid in the drain and then spray it in the air on the concrete everywhere just to make sure that that brett in that drain didn't make it in that barrel you know 180 feet away it's just that's how it works that people are just terrified of it it's so funny to me i don't know just uh, you know what i mean it's so funny because it you know it just it, it's like where it, it is in there it's just it's like a funny thing you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just wild i i also feel that way about like a lot of you know like the i mean at the end of the day beer is one of the most ancient things we've we do as humans and so i don't think people understand how dirty people were back in the olden times <laughs> oh could you imagine what they they figured out that beer was made three thousand years ago <laughs> <laughs> the industrial revolution was maybe a hundred. So yeah, what was going on before that, right? We were, yeah, it was all right. It was all right. You know what I mean? You just have to like think about it and be aware of things. But how clean could they really get things back then? So you know, and I'm always enough. like, just calm down. I mean, my it's kind of funny because they're always like, just calm down, people. Recently, my partner actually got that tattooed on their knuckles, which I'm pretty jazzed about because it's like, we're always like, calm down, people. You don't have to be freaking out so much about things. Yeah. Chill the fuck out. That's the message. (laughs) So on that note, we're talking about um, contamination. Did you guys ever have a batch of beer that you needed to dump that you you didn't or that made it to bottle and then needed to not be sold? And this, I'll preface again, because you don't necessarily know my whole story. I did this a lot. And it was one of the, the worst things that ever happened was that I my career beforehand and I, technically my career now is, is in sales. And so if you're a salesperson and you are then tasked with tasting things, you're going to sell yourself on why it's good enough and why it's got alcohol in it and it tastes like raspberries. Also, there's a hint of acetic acid. And by hint, I mean a fuck ton. Anyways, there, there were some beers I should have dumped, many of beers I should have dumped early on, and I didn't. But how did, did that work for you guys? Did you have any of those misses at all? Yeah. I mean, that strawberry knotweed one that I was telling you about, like, we really dug because it was like, the thing with that knotweed is that it, and it or rhubarb in, at all, is that it's like really just like a punch in the face of sour on its own. So the knotweed that brings beer... acidity? Like it, it has its own or just because it ferments, it brings more acidity out? What do you it has its own acidity. Like if you, for people that aren't familiar with um, rhubarb, if you just like pick it, the traditional way that like in New England you eat it is you just, you like dip it into a bowl of sugar and then like take a bite and then dip it in sugar and then eat it. 
it's awesome. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> the beer tasted exactly like that. It was like that rhubarb taste punched to the face and then strawberry in the back. And it was like really brightly acidic and it was really fun. People that love Sour Patch Kids were like into it. Most people, they were like, whew, it was just too much. And I probably, and I knew that deep down inside me. I really did. I knew that it was going to be, it was going to be a stretch. And so it really just was kind of a bummer, but I, I didn't feel awesome. Like we didn't like, I didn't feel awesome about that. And like I threw out a lot of the bottles. Well, that sucks. So, so you threw it out because the ultimately the recipe just didn't work out because of the way that it worked, but it wasn't a process error. I think that with, with the way our base was, because again, that, that farmhouse ale, like all the other fruits that we had, I mean, fr- they weren't like tart fruits. They were all, you know, mm. fruit regular, like eating fruits. And so it worked really well with all of those. And then it was just with, the way that it, the base already was that having that intense not weed flavor and because we use like real fresh strawberries and all that kind of stuff the strawberry flavor was like there it really was but it was like not strong enough to kind of combat that rhubarb jazz now strawberries are tough because it, most of what people think of with the strawberry is the sweetness so it, it ferments out our strawberry Barrel-aged beers from Reformed with strawberries was three pounds of strawberries per gallon. And then also an additional um, vanilla bean for every barrel, essentially. And so the idea was to add some sweetness. And that worked. But anything less than that, you'd lose the strawberry. It just would die. It's crazy. Yeah. No, we would use a lot of fruit. I think that that's something I want to <laughs> maybe boil. Because we grew the fruit. It was like we put a lot of fruit in the beer. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we use a lot, especially with like the, the like aged barrel stuff. I would put sometimes like 30 pounds of fruit in. Yeah. Into and one. it was kind of cool. I mean, we had this one that we made that was Huckleberry. This is totally off topic. This was a, this was like my favorite beer. Cause it was like so nerdy that when we put the Huckleberries in it, the berries inside the wine barrel created like a, perfect seal because there's so much fruit so no oxygen was like moving around in there so when you open the bottle it was clear and then the next day it would be like lilac and then if you left it for one more day it would be like zinfandel like ink purple it like colored with oxidation or what do you mean yeah colored with oxidation because the fruit in the barrel kept it like so sealed that it just like didn't the color when developed, it was we were, it was kind of like a fun party trick bottle too. And it was a barrel aged one, so we only had you know so many cases of it. So it was, that was a cool beer. It was just so neat. Even when you were pumping it through, you could kind of see like at the edges of like the pump and stuff, like where there's a air a little air getting in that would kind of get a little purple. It was neat. So did you guys always fruit in the barrel? Which was probably something I should have asked before, but is that where you added fruit? Yeah, what a nightmare. What was I thinking? <laughs> Well, there's a lot of guys that do. It's not necessarily wrong, um, but as everyone's got a different oh. process, and I should have asked that because your process is uh, – people can learn from it. So did, do you think that you should continue to fruit in a barrel, or are you saying that based on your comment that you should not? Oh, I think that you should if you want to have – I think it's awesome for flavor and quality and that kind of thing. I think it's an absolute nightmare to get it out. 
I would have tried to really brainstorm another way to do it, but it really created an incredible product. That that's the real truth of it. But it was a nightmare to deal with getting it out and cleaning it and uh what a what a what a banana experience. Well and I do think that if you have uh, enough barrels or a you know a wide enough um stable essentially, one of the things that I found extremely valuable was to have a shit ton of barrels that had X something. And then I could create all kinds of blends or if the fruit came in, I had things that represented different things. So, you know, the the barrel that had had wine grapes in it at one point now had kind of this mild red tannic thing that went really well with raspberries or added like a minerally base to complement. Anyways, long story short, if you've got enough barrels and can make that work, if, if you don't, that's definitely an issue. Like it's going to take you hours to clean that shit out. At least maybe yeah. a day. Also, all your beers sound amazing. I just want to tell you that I would have been really into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think vice versa. It's going to be one, one of those things that it's the the mutual admiration club, right? Like, and, and I said this in the beginning, but your yours is the kind of brewery that my entire intention. I was in downtown New Braunfels, cool brewery, but in, in great location, but not enough uh, dirt and 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 like uh, farmhouseness. So. I wanted to have that be my tasting room and then expand to have something outside the city on land. And it just, it was never a viable option. And it, it was clear that the market here was not going to support what we did. And we had a bottle club. They loved it. And they, they went as deep as we could go. And I made some truly unique and off the wall stuff. But the broader market didn't give a shit because at that point in time, it had to have lactose and it had to be called sour and it, and it had to have enough sweetness to balance it where it wasn't actually sour and it is what it is i, don't, I, don't, I walked away happy but yeah i did walk away or mm-hmm. ran i guess you could say he's like i'm free and then just running into the hills that's like <laughs> it wasn't that far from like that it. we're about to take a break soon but first let's get into one of my favorite topics on the face of the earth or let me clarify one of my f- one of the most fun topics for me to talk about, but one of my least favorite topics in the entire industry, and that is distribution. So, did your beer in a retail world ever leave your farm? Yes. How did it get in there? In the most minute way ever. <laughs> so, my food company, um, as I kind of honed in on the farm, I, I really went from catering and started really only doing wholesale food. So we were already in a lot of like private, like small local grocery stores and farm stores and things like that with our food for, and with, and we had been working with like the farmers and the farmers markets for like years. So we had these relationships kind of developed already. So there's a lot of places where we had our food and we we're already delivering. So we just delivered beer too. Is the was the food like I've seen jars on your um, Instagram where like jellies and and preserves, but were you also talking about like fresh produce or what were you what all were you delivering? Oh no, we did um, frozen like soups, hmm. dinners like TV dinners, veggie burgers. You did that from the farm? Like, did you have like a flash freezer? How did you do that? I, I, I apologize. Yeah, the beer I have a podcast, big like walk in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a big walk in fridge freezer. And I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing this food on like a small scale, but then I was like, this is like, if I'm going to keep doing food, this is like a better way to do it. And so I'm an adjunct faculty member at a local community college. So I also have had access. I mean, I still do, but um, I was able to get 
like cool culinary students who wanted to come and like, so they would come and help me cook and, and they would kind of take over that. And I would just oversee it while I kind of like dealt with the brewery. And we had a delivery person who was like a cool lady in town that also worked at like the local winery on the weekend. So it was kind of like a nice thing. Um, but our, our food, the, where we were selling our food, we were able to sell our beer there too, but that wasn't like a huge thing. It was mostly from our store. Okay. So occasionally you'd have places that would take it or whatever, but did, did you ever consider distribution or was from the beginning, I, I know it was not a written down business plan, but did your business plan in your head ever uh, incorporate uh, either statewide distribution or out of state or international? Like, was that ever a plan? It wasn't the original plan. But when I was, once we opened and I realized kind of like more about how the space was, like the tap room and stuff was for people and, and how that was working out, that's when I started thinking about cans and the cans would be for distribution. And then the cool stuff would still only be available at the farm. We wouldn't have that much of it. So did you get far enough to actually talk to distributors and like figure out like how that would look and work? Yeah, I started talking to them and they're basically like, if you get cans, let us know. And I was <laughs> like, I'm working on it. And they were like, so when you get cans, let us know. And I was like, okay, cool. Bye. You know, it was one of, it was that kind of conversation. So I was trying to get more information, but it wasn't coming. Yeah. So the distribution is one of those areas that, and, and I think, I'm not going to predict anything, but I th- I'm hoping that at some point after maybe 100 episodes that I, I do sort of a summary book and look at all the things that were a problem for everybody. And it, it seems to me that distribution is going to be the biggest bullshit bottleneck of every brewery in the United States. But again, I'm only 18 episodes in, so we'll see. But did, did you just reach out to the ones that you knew that were local did you try to find like, – so one of the things that I did is I went to like Prairie's web, website and uh, Jester King's website and they had who we work with in different states. And I was like, okay, I'm going to reach out to those guys. Uh, what Did you have a strategy or well, who would you talk to? Because I think that makes a difference. I'm curious. Well, the interesting thing was when I was doing it, I was going to try to – because of the product, I was trying to figure out a way to only distribute to New York City. Oh, um, and Manhattan. New York, yeah, because because it's not it's only three hours away from us, and I just knew the market would be interested in the product there, and uh, at a price point that made sense for what we were doing, and would we could never get in Massachusetts. I mean, mostly no one got back to me. I, I would say that was most of it was that no one got back to me. Someone got back to me and was very curt. And I was like, that's cool. Why would I want to work with someone that, again, I've I've just been like working with businesses and running other people's businesses for so long. I'm just like at this point where I'm like, I'm sick of all these schmoes and (laughs) going through the motions and getting all and, and having these businesses. And I'm like, I don't want to give money or work with anyone that doesn't, treat me with respect or, or any, you know, at any level. Um, and so, or just give you the time of day or like a helpful, a helpful solution, you know, to keep moving on the way, just be nice. Uh, kindness first, you know? And so I didn't really get anywhere is the real answer. And so I went my, before I moved back and, and got the farm and everything, I had had a restaurant in New Haven, Connecticut. 
which is where Yale is. And it's kind of like not New York City, but it's like very, they are just like, it's like very close to being in New York City because there's so much international students and professors and things like that. And also I knew every single person that owned every single restaurant and bar in town and I was friends with them. So I was like, maybe I'll just distribute to Connecticut and I can just sell to like all my friends places. And so I really looked into doing that. And the thing was that you had to have a business license to distribute in Connecticut. You, I would also have to open a business that was home was in Connecticut. So I was like, well, I know a woman that owns a brewery in New Haven. Maybe I'll just be like, hey, do you distribute? Do you want to? What if we just have two female brewers and we distribute our beer together in New Haven? And she's like, a, she's like this kind of hotshot lady about town that everyone knows. That's like a salsa teacher, and then she was like one of the first black female brewers um, that had her own place. I should say. She was like, nah, I just, I just like let other people do everything. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then I was like, <laughs> I don't want to open another, I don't want to have another business that I got to deal with all the different taxes and different accounting. I was like, I'm out. And this was all like kind of happening while we were trying to figure out the canning thing with this other, with this other company. And it was just, became too many moving parts for me (laughs) and I kind of just I was just like I I don't know there's a a point I think where you get to where you're just like I'm, I'm putting in all I'm like pushing this rock up this hill I'm pushing it I'm pushing it I'm pushing it and literally nothing's happening (laughs) you know what I mean I'm like literally spinning in place so I kind of was just like, I got to give this a rest for like a month or so before my brain explodes. And then they ended up just going with a different life plan and closing the brewery. So I never kind of got to that place. But that was the long saga of me trying to, again, Polish MacGyver, distributing to a place where I thought the beer would be <laughs> more successful based on the difference in clientele. It didn't work. None of it worked. So awesome no so i think that's one of the things that and there's that in my opinion there were a few of them but one of the amazing things that shelton brothers did for the united states is that they went absolutely against the grain and they supported guys initially internationally and then they did find some domestic partners, quite a few domestic partners and they just continued to push that they were the liaison between the artist and the commercial guy and at, at the end of the day, I don't obviously it didn't work because they went out of business, but they were for a long time the way that people like us that wanted to make something beautiful, irregardless of its commercial viability. <laughs> and we didn't want to hear about you know, the idea was like, let me just make it and let you just make it make money. And distributors, especially by the time you guys opened, that they were just at a point where they were tired and they did not want to deal with craft beer and i get it but it it's it's sad I and mean, we dealt with the same thing and at the end of the day i think if if you distilled down what ended up happening or why i sold the brewery and why the revenues went down as dramatically as they did it was distributor related and they would say it's because i didn't support them but at the end of the it, at the end of the day you could argue that it was because they didn't do their job too but whatever uh, 
So there's that. But I think you made the right choice because I don't think distribution would have saved you. That no, being- it would have been like another nightmare that I would struggle through and then be like, it's not worth it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, what I see a lot is that uh, the initial pickup is always big, right? Because the distributor's like, oh, shit, we've got X accounts. Um, we, we're pretty sure that 10% will buy your product. I'm going to need this. And you make a bunch and you send it to them. And that ends up being a six-month supply. And then you're long on inventory and you're you know, you're trying to pay your suppliers and you're completely fucked. So I think mm-hmm. you made the right choice. But we're going to get there in a second. First, I decided that it's time for me to have a glass of bourbon. And I'm going to go ahead and pour that. So let's take a quick break. Let me pour that and we're going to get back to talking about first your tasting room and last what that was like to finally decide to make the decision to close it down. So we'll be right back. So welcome back. Uh, So I went and poured myself a glass of Angel's Envy bourbon. I'm curious, Lauren, what you poured for yourself. You know, earlier in the day, I was, was planning on make myself a cocktail, like I normally start with a cocktail, but because I just want to be super good about getting back, I um, am I'm drinking red wine, um, which is also, I think, 65% of my body's makeup. Um, What's your favorite? And- I'm curious. I'm a real, I get, I don't, not dissimilar from the way I, you know, I love the way I made beer. Uh, I really like something that's like dry and lightly acidic and well balanced. So if I am, you know, if I'm really excited to go bougie, I, I'm going to drink like burgundy and stuff. But um, I, love portuguese red like red wines uh, or wines in general um and i love uh i lived in bordeaux france when i was uh 17 to 18 and so i got i that's part of why i love wines wine and the style of beer that i made is because i had this like big time spent and uh in a major wine producing area of the world um where the quality is pretty exceptional. So kind of where my love comes from on that. Yeah. So I was actually in Napa. One of my buddies is one of those rich guys that likes to like, like hang out with all the uh, like high end bottles, right? Like he can't drink it if it's not 300 bucks. And oh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that guy, but I'm absolutely got the guy behind that guy. And so I was having a great time enjoying it and not really enjoying the conversation with the owner. And all of a sudden the, winemaker drives by on a four-wheeler with like a t-shirt and whatever his it's uh i can't remember his name and if, if you hold, hold my feet to the fire i could tell you but it was uh it was super hilarious and all of a sudden the the owner he's just like oh fuck he's coming you could see the look on his face he's like benoit it was benoit was coming over and he ended up talking to us and that dude was hilarious and he was from a bordeaux what we say here but he corrected me after uh, many glasses of wine that it was Bardu and that I was a like an asshole for saying it the American way. So yeah, that that's all yeah. I know of Bordeaux. <laughs> I don't drink Bordeaux. I'm a, I'm a New World guy only because of the fact that I don't have the energy to learn the other 28 million wines made outside of the United States. But I'm a big fan of Petite Syrah. It's probably my favorite. And if you come to Texas, you. You probably should drink Tempranillo, and that's it. And that's that. That's my personal opinion. But 
<laughs> I mean, there's great, like, uh, you know, from uh, uh, Maynard from um, Tool and all those bands, he has wineries in Arizona and they're great. Um, great I have, wine. A, I have a bottle of his in my cellar. It's on the far right, so I never forget to accidentally drink it. I'm saving it for a special occasion. But yes, Carduc. Ah, how do you say it? Um, Carduc. That's one of them. And he has Arizona Stronghold, and there's one other. Yeah, you should carry their wine in, in uh, my restaurant. And then once I did go to a tasting where he was at in uh, New York City, and I was like, I couldn't bring myself to fangirl uh, at all. Um, I was like, really like, so nice that you're here. Thank you so much. I love your wine. <laughs> and then moving along. And then inside I was like, can I kiss you? You know, that's how I felt. <laughs> that's awesome. I do have a couple of bottles in my cellar that are kind of expensive and whatever, but that's the one that I refuse to drink on a whim. It has to be the right moment with the right people. And it's just sitting there waiting for that. But yeah. No, it's good. It's really good wine. It's worth it. Yeah. Really? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited to try it. So I, I said before the break that we were going to talk about your tasting room. Um, and I think you had mentioned that that didn't have the space and the whatever. So uh, let me let me give you a reason why this is one of those topics for me is that I, after opening, did the math. And in Texas, uh, I guess a little more backstory, in, in 2011 when we opened, or 2012 when we were building, it was illegal for us to sell beer across the counter as a production brewery. So nobody built a actual bar. You know what I mean? We didn't build it with the intention of people hanging out and, and you know, cheers, right? So years later, mm-hmm. we tried to sort of retrofit it, and it didn't work. It was too late. There wasn't space. I couldn't make it work. So I did the math, and I was like, okay, revenue per seat per hour. How do we make a profit? And I realized that we were we were fucked. There was no, there's no way to do it. So your tasting room was kind of intimate. You didn't have draft, remember, right? And, and to tell me about it. Like, how did that work? And what do you, were, is there, were there any regrets? Yes and no. Um, it, 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 it did work well. It was, it's really, it, it, I mean, it still is there. And we're, we're actually opening it soon as something else, but it's really, it was really nice and cute inside. And, and the problem was, is that we are on a septic. We couldn't have public bathrooms. We couldn't be open like a bar. Was that a county? We issue? could put in a water treatment plant on the farm, except that because again we have like a stream about 200 feet on into the property. So like most of the farm is it's like our street side of the farm is like you know two acres where all the buildings and everything are that happen, and then the rest of the property was the farm and it was like really clearly separated by the stream. We couldn't put in a water treatment plant because of a stream and that like it had to be like 500 feet away from the well, but that's like, it would have to be on a neighbor's property. Like what a nightmare. So we were like, well, we can't have a water. We're not going to put in a water treatment plant. So we didn't have bathrooms. Technically, obviously we're nice people. So we let people use the bathroom, but technically we couldn't have outside people using the bathroom. Was that a county, county rule or was that like, what do you mean by you couldn't? That was a water. That was like, we had to call the state. It was like mm-hmm. a water state law thing. Also like we're in this like kind of mini Valley before these mountains. And it's like the water table. Apparently I moved to the Pacific Northwest this year. Cause the weather has, we, the water table this year has been about, two inches below the ground and it's like a little i think the whole 
mini valley is turning back into a river but you know hopefully hopefully it'll be after i'm too old to care we could just couldn't do that and so we couldn't really open as a bar but we were like whatever we're in a neighborhood we don't really want to be like that anyways but people really wanted to hang out and we couldn't really do that except in nice weather in the summertime and so that was really challenging yeah i mean like we had outside space like on the on the farm like we had like yard games and picnic tables and stuff so when people were there um in the summertime the weather was nice they would hang out we did cheese boards and you know little snacks and sometimes we would do like special food we had cheese from this farm like right down the street you know and it was really great but to depend on the weather solely as everyone really knows and especially deeply since covid is like a little tough and the store wasn't set up to be a cozy intimate hangout it was set up to be a store like a shop and go it was, well i had a cool tasting you know but it's like was like really you know set up where you could fit a lot of people like out of the bar getting um flights and things like that but you it wasn't like a place that you would go on a date necessarily it was more like you go and hang out with your friends but if it got busy it was like you you couldn't have that many people in there really because we also sold our farm we sold all our frozen food and we that we wholesaled and we also sold random canned goods we make from like things on the farm just like kind of creative things like we sell hot cocos and things because we have campsites on the farm and so it's like nice for people to be able to get cocoa mix so like looking back obviously you made we're, we're about to get in a minute to the decision of why you decided to close but how much would you have changed that tasting room and, and i'll tell you so obviously we've been through many pivots in our business and every time we pivoted we once we pivoted to 12 months bottles we had to buy it in you know, $20,000 like bottling line, we had to change labels. And after COVID, I realized that I needed to pivot back to the tasting room. I need to invest, in my opinion, it was going to be $40,000. And I just wasn't willing to do it. So that's why I put the brewery up for sale. And I'm like, you know what, the next guy is probably willing to do it. Looking back, was that a pivot you think maybe you should have made if you want to keep the brewery open to expand that tasting room or to make it somehow more of a destination? Like, I'm, I'm curious. It, it just, there was, the only option was, really, was that if we wanted to do something like that, we would have to buy the plot of land next door that's undeveloped and put in a parking lot that was bigger. Like, we had a parking lot, but it, we couldn't have 100 cars parked if we wanted to have, like, a big event. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, to be able so, to generate some revenue, like, in a big way for that weekend or whatever. Yeah, and we did do, like, we did do a wedding for one of our neighbors, but when there's, like, this, <laughs> there's a septic, like, <laughs> diagonally across from us, there's, like, this really old family that owns, like, most of the street, and they make, like, septic, like, a cement, it's, like, this old cement place, and so they have this big, like, parking lot, because they have, like, huge trucks going there all the time. And so they usually like let, they would like let people like we're doing something be like, oh, just like, even if the neighbor's kids having a graduation party, they're like, can we park cars here on Saturday or whatever? And they're like, yeah, that's cool. But for us, it was across the street. And so I was like, I can't do that because I'm going to have to get a police officer. And I'm like, that's going to be a nightmare. I would have needed to put in a bigger parking lot and buy that land. And again, it was just like, I wasn't, I was to the point at that juncture that i was like i don't i i think the answer is less and not more and i'm like so and i'm so still 
I, pr- I will preach that till the day I die. Less, not more. Don't do more things. Do less things. Well, so like one of the questions I think for the you know guy or girl starting up a brewery would be, if you had financed all of that into an initial package, would that have been a success story? Would you know would would that have made sense at that point? I mean, you, it, it could it, obviously it can be done if you throw enough money at something, you can make it awesome. That's like I think kind of like not a question. You can always throw enough money at something to do something differently and kind of like rehone it and bring in more aspects of the business so that you can have if you hire the right people and have good managers in place you can like really do like more events which we i mean i know from catering it's like what how i was able to buy the farm was i had did 30 weddings a year and i had to go to three of my own family's weddings this year and i was like i'm off for five years i've i've done gone to more weddings than any human should ever have to in their (laughs) lifetime and so you can make good money, but it's a night. It's like a nightmare to deal with all the people and the expectation and all that. So it's really, it's really, it, it doesn't feel like you're making a lot of money because of, of the emotional nightmare it is dealing with people on their wedding day. But the money at least is sure, and you book it out far ahead of time, and so you can really like budget things. And so, would that have worked here? Yeah, for sure, definitely, no question. Like worked in the sense that Black Rabbit would still be making and selling beer, or worked in the sense that it'd been better than it was. I think it would, because I think it could, it would still be making beer, possibly. I mean, obviously, probably not with me, <laughs> but someone else did it. I was pretty much like when I was done with the beer, I'm like, I'm pretty much like, you know, I the first time I've gone to a brewery since we closed was like a few weeks ago. It was for a fundraiser for a local skate park. I just, I kind of got, maybe that, I kind of got, yikes, I don't want to touch it. And I mean, also when the COVID was a whole thing, so it was kind of like, it, it didn't, wasn't that active of a decision for a while anyway. So during COVID, <laughs> yeah. meaning you didn't go to other breweries or you didn't drink beer? Let's clarify that because that's different. I didn't drink beer. You're skipping ahead because this is a question I actually have written down to make sure to ask every single guest that I have, but in, including you. So how has working in this industry affected your relationship to beer? And so for me, I have realized that I've come to this conclusion. I didn't want to, so I guess whatever you want to say. But it turns out I'm allergic to beer and in the sense that like I can drink literally half a bottle of whiskey and I don't wake up feeling like shit. Beer, I am bloated. I've, I've, I, you know, I, I'm more, I'm more drunk. I obviously the the calories, or whatever. So I've stopped drinking beer since I sold the brewery, and I'm so much happier. And I'm, I'm gonna have one here and there, but it's different. But I'm curious what your relationship is to beer specifically, and then clearly you're drinking wine, so it's not alcohol overarchingly. But what, what is your, how did it affect it? No, I'm definitely pro alcohol. Um, <laughs> uh, like you know, that. I am Irish and Polish. I, I want to point out so there's like a deep, deep. Um, historical parts of that in my family but um a big part of it and that it that is that my I think because I really love sharing things like I like going out to dinner and we all get stuff when we share it on the table or we like every I hate when people order the same thing as someone I like why are we getting the same thing let's all get different stuff and we can taste it it's so fun and my partner who I love deeply is gluten-free and our house is gluten-free 
not in that like I couldn't can't drink beer, but it's kind of like the, there's no one to share it with. There's no one to have that experience with of like drinking something, you know, unique and interesting. And so we just don't ever have it at home. But like I said, I, I mean, I'll like drink it out. It's like not I'm not against it. I, although I did have some like cool things from other people that I had cellared that in my basement and I've been cleaning, trying to clean out my basement and maintain some just kind of order order down there. And I drank that the other night and it was it was pretty awesome. Because I love when things are just like so aged that they're like, you're like, man, if I waited two more weeks, this would have started getting weird. I like when it's like right on the cusp. That's my favorite. And that was like right there because it had been down there for like five years, six years. And it was awesome. It was like someone, you know, I hate that I can't remember exactly whose it was, but it was like, it was a cherry sour from someone. And it was so good because they've been down there so long. So I do, I, I like do, I will drink it, but I'm, it's not something that like I normally consume. And, and I kind of is that I, it, part of it does come from the fact that I'm just like, I don't know how I honestly, I'm torn between beer community, like get it together or like just calm the hell down. Like, I don't know which one more, maybe 50, 50, but I, I, it's too much of a crapshoot. It's, it's like you buy something and try it. It's like, it's literally like, 50, I mean, maybe it's less. It Maybe it's 60, 40 that it's going to, 40% that it's going to be a chance that it's going to be good. There's so much of stuff out there that you're just like, I, I want it to be good. I want it to be awesome. I want to be excited about this product. And you're just like, oh, why is this even being made? You know, <laughs> so I'm just like, it's really hard with beer. Like, I don't have that issue with wine, really. I can, like, really kind of using knowledge of, like, the industry. It, like, it can be, I can just go anywhere and buy something. And it's generally going to be pretty awesome and into work for what it, we need it to do for whatever meal. But beer, you know, sometimes you get it and you're like, this is just bad. It's like literally has gone bad in a can or bottle. And who knows how long it was sitting on that shelf. And they just were like, no, it's okay. So that also kind of is a, is part of the decision. It's just like, I just don't want, I'm just sick of like, wait, like spending my money and, and not being like really jazzed ever about what I'm drinking. So do you think that has something to do with the fact that um, people like you and I have a different perspective on what excites us when you put it in our glass? Or do you think that it's, or I guess the same token, it's, it's driven by a market that is driven by people that aren't us. I mean, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely um, stems from a different value system on how you enjoy food and beverage and what you're thinking about when you're doing it. I go, you know, I'm happy to make go, eh, you know what, this sucks, whatever. I'm like, at the another, you know, it just comes from always working in food and beverage. You go, you eat three times a day. Who cares? You order something, you know, like you get over it. Who just like you go? I don't know. I'm gonna try again in a few more hours. It's like not that big of a deal. So you might as well try something because it could be awesome. Whereas, and because you want to have a something amazing, versus people that are just like, no, this is the 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 only thing I like. I like this. 
convince me otherwise. And you're like, I don't care about you. Like, why, why am I convincing you of anything? Come on, dude. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I, I do, I do think that is part of it is just that they, the, the whole concept, the like decision-making process on what to eat and drink is just totally different. Yeah. I just mean that you, your values don't align with the average consumer. I think that's fair to say, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I think that's the same issue that I have. And the things that I got excited about and the things that my bottle club got excited about weren't things that we could sell to the average consumer in downtown San Antonio. And we could sell to some, we just couldn't sell to enough. And ultimately, that was a big issue for us. And we're gonna about to find out if that's a big issue for you as well. So our longtime listeners will appreciate the, we have a segment called untapped check-ins where i just like shit on all the untapped people and all the crap they talk and all the garbage they spout and i'm gonna be honest with you you guys did not have bad untapped check-ins you had a few that were just sort of stupid in the sense that they didn't get it didn't like it whatever but nobody that was uniquely terrible or that was just shitting on you to shit on you in the sense um that we've seen here locally but i know when i talked to you before you had mentioned that there was like, you know, there was definitely a, an issue with sort of the local market supporting you and that you felt like there was some negativity. And I'm just, I would curious, since it wasn't online, uh, what was that like? How did, like, how did that manifest itself and, and what happened? It's, it's kind of interesting. So I was honestly for, for a long time restaurant manager and owner and, and food person. The fact that we, our reviews were relatively awesome was dumbfounding to me um, <laughs> because I was really always ready for, I mean, at our campsites, it was like sometimes some weekends were like, what is going on with the moon? I don't even know what's happening. People would be like, there's bugs. I'm so upset. And you're like, I don't know. You're outside in the summertime. I don't know what to tell you, you know? And so it was like, you're, I was so used to that kind of thing that I was kind of surprised. And I think it was kind of, we really were, it really felt like a farm store when you came in and it really felt like, you know, we were really farming and we were really kind of like just doing it ourselves. And so like, it was interestingly, like we had some, like a lot of people that were in our area that are kind of like homesteading or, you know, I mean, again, it's like that, that kind of blue collar crowd really, got it and like although they weren't like going to come in and buy a ton of beer they were super kind to us and super sweet because they like knew about farming and they knew about like just working just like just throwing your body into it all the time and never seeing an end in sight and so they were into it in that way like they were like i mean the best apple brandy i've ever had was some dude stop by and was like, I made this at my house. It's just apples. And I was like, whoa, this stuff is bonkers. Bonkers, good. And that was like kind of an interesting clientele we had was like this like kind of like the real mountain guys. And for lack of a better term, like real farm, farm folk, you know, really kind of got it. It was just people that just, oh man, God, the IPA question. It was just people that are just like, what do you got for IPAs? You're like, calm down. There's other things in the world. 
and they'd be like, you're a brewery and you don't have an IPA. And you're like, calm down, calm down. There's other things. Why don't you just try something? You're already here. Just try something. People would just walk out because they're not IPAs. I don't really know how to explain that. It was like really bonkers because I didn't understand. We weren't just like downtown. You had to like drive to us. Yeah. Where'd you go Um, from there? Right. I mean, there's a lot of breweries and wineries around us. It's like not like so far, like, you know what I mean? Like the the major like toll highway in Massachusetts is like 12 minutes away. It's not like not really far away from things, but like the actual road that we're on is, is pretty rural. It's not near other stores or shops or anything like that. And so I feel like you drove over here, you might as well just like try something. And it was in your, and people were just, could be pretty rude about it or and, and for other things or just felt like they often made us feel like we were trying to be too hoity-toity to them, which was kind of the opposite. Cause like I said, like our, maybe our core people were like our farming neighbors um, that were just like cool, helpful people, you know, that were like, Oh, cool. Do you want to trade me for this? Oh, could I borrow this? You know, <laughs> could I borrow this implement for your tractor? And like, I'll like bring you some of my signature ribs. And you're like, yeah, sick. That's cool. Yeah, the, it was kind of like the middling, kind of like those core, unfortunately, the core breweries, like iconic brewery group of, of, of customers. I don't know. Was it not masculine enough, maybe? I don't know. That sometimes is kind of how I feel is that the space and the environment, it wasn't masculine enough. It threw people off. That's like the real, the real the real feeling that I have about the ultimate choice was that I'm like, this is, I like being in really beautiful spaces. It doesn't mean that it's fancy. It just is like, I like things to be clean and organized and like thoughtful and comfortable to be in because I like to be in, if I'm going to have to be in the store all the time, I want it to feel nice. I don't want to be loud and obnoxious or anything. I want to feel good. So you know, I, I don't, that's like not the common thing. I know, you know, I'm, I know like a lot of breweries have like really, you know, cozy spaces, but for us, it, I don't, I don't know. It, did, it didn't work. Isn't that um, like more similar to talk. how maybe the wineries in your area though? Like most of the wineries I go to, they're not like super cozy. I mean, they kind of have the same feel I, in my opinion as yours did. It was more winery. Like when people, some, uh, some people did make that correlation really quickly. And they're like, Oh, it's kind of like a cool winery. I could just come, I could bring my wife here. We could just hang out outside. I'm like, yeah, totally. Whenever you want. Yeah. You're like, come whenever you want. I mean, often we'd like close and our neighbors would be like with their like friends that were visiting in town. We'd like close the doors, leave them outside be like, it's fine. We'll clean up in the morning. Like chill. We're going out to dinner. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, bye. Because there's just like, you know, what are they going to do? They're just going to hang out. It's fine. Yeah, and it was a part of your lifestyle. And that's one of those things that like a lot of people forget is that, in my opinion, brewery, owning a brewery today is a lifestyle business in the sense that you have to want to do that and live it and have fun with it. If you're trying to get into it to make money, you're in deep fucking shit, in my opinion. Oh, um, yeah, 100. So I mean, really, any business, I think at this point, you, you have to, I mean, you really have to love what you're doing. I mean, even to be a doctor, it's not a good time to be, a, it's like not nice even to be a doctor. Yeah, you make good money, but like, when do you spend it? And your bills are like, your college costs a billion dollars, you know? 
you have to really love what you do no matter what it is these days because it it it, it all is a little it's a little overly challenging for a, a variety of reasons so yeah you I, I wasn't necessarily tied to beer i'm just a maker person and so i didn't really care what i was making as long as i was making cool things and people were buying it and so i didn't need to be tied to the beer do you know what i mean I think I've been personally trying to not say this out loud. I was going to wait till the end, but I'm going to go ahead and put this into the recording that I'm going to send you a book and in the in that package, I'm going to send you, I think, four beers and I'm going to ask you politely on this podcast in public so everyone knows that you didn't send it back. Just please send back four beers of yours. Nothing will excite me more than being able to drink your beer here at my house. Yeah, no, I think we, I mean, we don't have that much <laughs> around, but I think we do have some stuff still. I, I, I think I do have a few things um, if I if I scrounge. Um, or, or put some food in there. I don't care. I want to have something. Oh, no, made. I'll definitely, I can definitely send you food. That's like not a big deal. As long as something you made comes back, I'm fine with that. If you're willing to stick around, I've got a few questions here in a minute, but I want to take a quick break. Totally. All right, we'll take a quick break. kids buying your grains you know back in the day we only had two options and each of them knew it when there isn't any competition things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys bottom lines but brewery direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016 they sourced grains for quality and grains for price and as an extension of johnson brothers bakery supply their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled and now with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, thanks for sticking around. Uh, we're going to go into kind of the lightning round. So this is me asking questions about the business overall. The, the kind of stuff I want to know, like what, at the end of the day, when you walked away, like who did you blame for the failure of the brewery part? Like, is it is it me? Is it is it you? Is it distributors? Like, what happened? Why, why are you not making beer anymore? I mean, I really fell out of love with it i really i i i you know i i i had to go i can make whatever i want that's not the issue i just if i'm going to make things for other people it needs to be something that it's i want to really want to make no matter what and i and beer wasn't it and I just didn't, I was like, I don't even, I don't even want to make it for anyone, even though there are some people that I was happy to get beer to afterwards. I have never looked back. But, but you liked it and you were proud of it personally, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people loved it. And um, I mean, when we did the, the big sour, the funk fest in Boston in 2019, we had like a band group that would just literally just ended up hanging by our table for like the whole time. Be like, oh, we're just going to drink your stuff the entire time we're here. 
people that were like really into it for like the art and the craft of the thing were really into it. People that like liked that we were just really making real things, you know, which is like a, a like craft wise, like a carpenter or, you know, any kind of artisan. That was really great. And we loved it, but I didn't feel like most of it was getting to people that loved it. And it was like kind of like, you know, you love it. And it's like emotionally challenging when a lot of it's kind of wasted in a way. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, so if, if I'm writing your story, I think that um, if you did what you did in 2012, you would be one of the most popular and amazing breweries in the world. And off air, you can ask me why, and I'll be happy to talk to that. But long story short, I think that what you guys did was was very rare, and no one really did it. Some people did it, pretended to do it, but didn't actually do it. And uh, again, off the air, I'm happy to talk about that. But long story short, my point being that I think that you had a fantastic idea, but for some reason it didn't catch fire. My personal opinion is it didn't catch fire because... It was after the market had moved on to garbage beers. But back in 2016, they would have freaked the fuck out with what you guys were doing. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, and I I think you're right. And I also think that in like a period of like maybe 10 years, there's going to be another thing. I mean, it's the same thing happened with California wines. It was like there was a whole 80s, 90s where like the wine was like all like over the top. Like, oh, my God, you know, like crazy um, like silver oak and all that stuff. You're like, okay, I get where you're going, but calm down. Like it doesn't need to be so in your face. And and like Cabernet got a huge California Cabernet got a huge bad rap. Everyone like told it as garbage because it was like so over the top. And then they like toned it down and stopped adding so much sugar to it and all that kind of stuff to get that high alcohol and kind of crafted it better. I mean, obviously there's lower price wines, but it really kind of regenerated the industry. And, and I think that there's like a lot more kind of like interesting wines coming out of the area after that. And I think that could happen again with beer, but it is, I mean, we're having the same thing with cannabis also in Massachusetts is happening here. Like literally every day you're like, oh, there's another dispensary. Okay. Now there's eight in town. It's like, okay. Like how is it that different? You know what I mean? But at the same time, Every town has a thousand pizza places and a thousand, you know, like liquor stores. So, I mean, everyone has chooses where they go for a reason. And I think I think beer could come back, but I think it's going to be a while before there's going to be like a lot of like, or at least a larger group of like high quality things coming out of the United States. I agree. Unfortunately, if you had to distill down the entire story of Black Rabbit brewing specifically what is your do you have a regret what is your biggest regret i mean the real regret is that i ever built the building i could have just run it as a farm and made sold ingredients to other breweries that opened and have like cool local fruit that i sold to other people and focused on that again doing less and that would have probably been a better decision to be like a co instead of trying to do everything independently to cooperatively try to move beer in a direction that I felt that was like more beautiful and sustainable from like a larger viewpoint. 
I'm actually crying when you said that, but it is it is what it is. But so, so a guy walks up to you today, and obviously you're uh, a consultant, and you you help people in the um, other job you have. But someone walks up to you today and says, "I want to open a brewery." What are three things you gotta you have to tell them? I mean, jokingly, I'd be like, "How much do you hate yourself?" one to ten. Do are you ready? Are you ready to hate yourself more? <laughs> but I say that I think that kind of feel that way about any creative business that anyone starts is that you have to kind of be ready to, you have to be ready to be essentially naked to the world. You you really kind of have to put yourself out there, and I think that that's really important for people to think about. It doesn't matter what the, how good it is. It doesn't matter. If everyone you know likes it, it doesn't matter. If it's unique, it doesn't. It does nothing really. None of those things actually matter. You have to. Uh, I mean, it really at the end of the day is like that location, location, location. Knowing that it's the over the cost of opening is four times what you've already budgeted it to be, like more than you think it should be, and it's going to take you four times longer, and it's going to take 800 times longer to pay off all that debt, and you're going to work all the time. Um, I, I, I mean, that's like any business, but I think a big thing that when I'm not trying to be like so intense about it is that I just go, all I want you to do is make sure that you create personal boundaries. Like, what do you really want from this personally? How much money do you need need to make, like actually need to make? Not like what can we do as a business, like what do you need to make from this? How are you going to structure your life, your other part of your life, the more important one, the one that's like your family and friends and yourself? How are you going to deal with that? And those are honestly the things I kind of try to impart to everyone that's starting a business, especially breweries and food and beverages, that you really just, you got to make it realistic for, for yourself um, and for the people that love you and that are around you. You can't forget that they need you to be there for them. Um, I think that's really the most important thing. Yeah, no, I agree. A tough lesson to learn, but definitely an important one. Why do you think that the model works for guys like Hill Farmstead, Jester King, Fontafora, but not you and not me? Why didn't it work for us, uh, but it works for them? I have a, I could talk to you for six hours on just this because I just like, uh, I mean, the reason why I went into teaching is because I do like analytically think about everything that I interact with every day. So I'm like kind of categorizing different things that everyone else is doing and and, and kind of weighing that and, and looking at it all the time. And I think that the, the biggest thing I can see between people that are successful and unsuccessful are there are people that are into community, like they need it. Like it's their own it's their it's their it's what drives them is that they're a part of this like major community um i I kind of one of my jokes with people starting business i'm like well the really only way to succeed is to have kids in the school system um in a town (laughs) and then you have an in i don't really like i love my community but i'm not like someone who is always having people around me i like to just i'm a farmer i like to just be 
out in the field, I don't, you know, I like to just hear the, the wind and the leaves and the plants talk to me. I don't, I don't want to like have all this. I don't want to, I'm not interested in having 18 people calling me on the phone or texting me. I'm like, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's like, I'm not on the phone when I drive. I've been trying to be better with my elderly aunts and uncles. I've been trying to call them on when I'm driving these days and it's still hard for me. I think that that's a big thing is that if you're, you need to be someone that's like deeply intrinsically community oriented in order to have a successful small business in whatever capacity. Um, you need to just be your live all be all is the friends, the people that come in, the family. And to me, that's exhausting. And, and, and I have tried to do it my whole life. I've tried it in a variety of different ways. And the only one that I find that works for me really is like the crusty old bar wench. So if I ever was doing another food business, I probably, I would only do like a dive bar because I, that character is something I'm, I'm really comfortable playing. Like the, the person that's going to take care of you when you're in a bad place, but at the end of the day, they're going to really give you the raw truth. I'm into that character and I'm going to play into it until the day I die, but it doesn't bode well for like, I, I'm not going to let people be rude to others around around me. I'm not going to let people talk about things that are disparaging to others. I, we like my partner and I. You know, we've made a, a big decision. I mean, they've always been this way, but it was really hard for me coming up with a business background and customer service background and be like, not kind of disregard things that you see and hear in um, working with the public all the time. And I just can't be around that kind of thing anymore. So I I wasn't going to be catering to everyone and, and, and being interested in what they were up to. I was going to be really like, I don't think that's like not something that that's not nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I don't feel bad saying that to you. You can leave my place. So... <laughs> I mean, not like that happened very often, but I'm just like, you know, I've, 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 in 20 plus years in the food and beverage industry, I've seen and heard a lot of like really, really just awful things. And, and, and at some point you go, if I don't say no, who's saying no? So I got to that age where I'm feeling better about it. I'm glad you got that age. I'm uh, 44. So maybe I haven't yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm just more tainted than you, I guess. <laughs> On the same note, like, Talk to me about like what that was like to finally make the decision to just say, you know what, I gotta get out. Like we can't make beer anymore. Like, how'd you come to it? And like, what was the final, I guess, straw that broke the camel's back, or how do you want to word it? It um, was really just tied to a journey of um, going. I need to. I'm getting older and I'm getting wiser, and I need to start thinking about I. I'm like someone who always slept like three hours a night and just like worked all the time. and was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And, um, that died out during the brewery as well. My energy, I started to be like, I'm a human. Oh, I'm everything hurts. So that was part of it. <laughs> I can't just like, you know, go, go, go all the time anymore. And I really also, I fell in love with someone who I realized that like, I wanted to, I really enjoyed just spending time with and I didn't want to have that be jeopardized in any way nothing was more important to me it became that nothing was more important to me than my personal relationships and doing things that like I always was like excited to go in and do and I realized that for me that was teaching 
and um, taking care of like my property and being with the people that I love and that love me back in the way that makes me feel wonderful. And so that meant a lot of life changes and the easiest way was to kind of hit a restart button. And so I, when I closed the brewery, I also stopped doing my food and I've been doing that for six years. I had a, a lot of loyal followers, friends and contacts and people that I was excited to see all the time and talk to. And, and, and I, but I really just had to, I just had to like hit stop. And I am so happy I did it. Um, because I, my life day to day is just incredible and I get to put more energy into the things that feed me personally, but it's different for everyone. Like if your community is in, in the beer community and your, your significant other and your, your brothers and sisters and cousins are all beer people and they're all like going to be with you and doing that all the time and, and want to be a part of this community too with you. I think that that is definitely something that makes it a more enjoyable experience. And that wasn't something that I had in it. And so there wasn't like any, anything that was chaining me to, or anyone that was going to like come up and, and, and support me more that to keep doing it. And so I just was like, I'm out. No, I get it. So at the end of the day, what would you say is the moral of the black rabbit story? Like, what'd you learn? How are you a better person now on the backside of being a brewery owner than you were beforehand? The moral is that uh, life is short and that you should uh, not work all the time. And so you should do less things, but do them well and not try to do everything yourself. And uh, really, if you want to make a product, make a product, but don't think that you're indebted to having to make a line of products you know, think about it more in that way. And I, and I talk to the people all the time about that. I'm like, you want to open a restaurant? I'm like, I think the restaurant's dead. Let's talk about <laughs> a product that you make that's incredible that you could wholesale across the country because it's shelf stable or whatever the case may be. And you could just really make something you love and you believe in, but you don't have to make all the things associated with it as well. Lauren, tell us how we can find you. So let's say somebody wants to open a brewery and they want your help. Can they get your help? Uh, yeah, totally. So, um, I, I do a variety of things now. We do still own the farm. Um, I live here with my beautiful partner that I love deeply and my four dogs and my two barn cats. (laughs) And, um, we, both have we both run the the brewery and the kitchen as incubator space for small businesses now and we help small businesses kind of like food and beverage businesses get uh, up and running because we have the infrastructure and usually they move on to larger spaces Um, and we also have campsites on the farm so people come and kind of like can come and visit and just see the farm and enjoy like being on a cute little farm that isn't that far away from Boston and New York, but um, it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. So it's kind of a cool space. Anything else that uh, I missed that you want to make sure we know? I think just kindness first, you know, that's it. That's all. That's the only, the only most important thing is just like, let's all just keep uh, helping each other out. And, uh, you know, I always say there's no such thing as competition. You know, it's just 
every everyone deserves kind of a place at the table for whatever it is that they're doing and we should just help each other get there well on that note thank you for your time uh, i think that's an awesome way to leave it and uh everything you've if talked about tonight is a fantastic way for anyone considering opening a brewery to just sort of look at all the possibilities think of all the angles and hopefully make the right choices and i appreciate you sharing that i appreciate you being willing to do it and um enjoy the rest of your wine tonight thank you very much (laughs) yeah definitely definitely thank you Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.